is logically dedicated to trying to understand a phenomena which most of us are not so acquainted with, but nevertheless, through hundreds and hundreds of years of Jewish history, has been classically known as the month of Elul and the specialness of this particular month. The last month of the year before the new year, which begins with the month of Tishrei, begins the last month is the month of Elul. And the month of Elul is classically seen as a total month of preparation for the upcoming high holy days of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. It is seen in the vein of being a month of preparation. Those of you that were here last week, we discussed some aspects of that preparation in terms of the attitude that we are to develop in terms of a relationship with God in this month. It is interesting and commonly known that the month of Elul, the word Elul, is really short for four words, Anila Deidi, the Deidi Lee. I am to my loved one and my loved one is unto me, which is a very interesting and almost uh, the antithesis of what we think of the high holidays as being a time of fear and a time of awe and a time of let's try to get away with as much as we can without getting too banged over the head. And nevertheless, the way the month of preparation for the high holidays is referred to is quite differently. Anila Deidi the Deidi Lee. It's a relationship. I to God and God to me. I to my beloved one and my beloved one to me. And we'll try to explain that somewhat this evening, why Elul is, is seen in that vein more than in just the brass tack vein of, okay, it's time to shape up. It's the last month of the year before I'm going to have to plead my case again on Rosh Hashanah, the Day of Judgment. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to dedicate this evening to trying to touch upon a number of subconscious concerns that we have when we approach this time of the year. There are a lot of things that talk to us in subconscious ways and make this time of the year one that there is almost a natural resistance to part of what this whole period of time is. And I would like to expose some of this subconscious resistance and try to discuss it in a way that we can face it in a healthy way and try to deal with it and get something out of the experience of this month of preparation. Firstly, it's, it's important to note the historical value that this particular month has. The historical value, just in terms of the source of where do we get this from, is it just one of those things, try to pay your bills 30 days before due date and you have 30 days to pay it, or does it really have some kind of a basis? It really has a very strong historical basis. The basis that it has is that when the Jews were traveling through the desert, we know that there was an event in their history called the sin of the golden calf. It was a form of idol worship for a segment of the population. For others, it was an awful mistake, but it wasn't idol worship. I'm not going to get into the entire issue. But one way or the other, God was quite annoyed, to say the least, or angry with the Jewish people, and even threatened to end his relationship with the Jewish people and start over again from scratch. And Moses, in his classical leadership role and in his love for his people, stood before God and prayed countless days and nights that God should see 
the good side of the Jew, the good side that could be developed with time, and he begs for their forgiveness. And we know that there was a 40-day segment of time from the time that the ego, the, the golden calf was worshipped, till right before the beginning of the month of Elul, that Moses prayed for that 40-day segment of time and did not accomplish forgiveness. And historically, this 40-day period of time in which Moses prayed for forgiveness but did not accomplish it, these days are called Yemei Kass, the days of wrath, days of anger. And Moses wasn't dissuaded from the fact that he had not accomplished in this 40-day period the forgiveness of the Jewish people, and he attempted another, another 40-day period of time which began with the beginning of the month of Elul when he ascended the mountains for the third time and prayed for the forgiveness of the Jewish people for the next 40 days, which culminated on the day of Yom Kippur when he came down and gave the message that God on this day has forgiven you, and for all times that day becomes the day of atonement, the day of Yom Kippur. But the way our sages look at this last segment of 40 days is that the entire period of time was an extremely meaningful period of time of bonding together the relationship that had existed earlier between God and his people. So we don't zero in just on the last day of Yom Kippur and we say the last day of Yom Kippur was the day. And all of the 39 days that succeeded it were not, preceded it, excuse me, that preceded it were not significant, but it is seen as a momentum that was building from day to day that finally reached a crescendo of love between God and his people that accomplished the forgiveness on the Day of Atonement. And therefore, this entire period of time, beginning with the, the very beginning of the month of Elul and finishing with the Day of Yom Kippur are referred to in the language of our sages as Yemei Ratzon, days of willingness, days of wanting the Jewish people and loving the Jewish people. Yemei Ratzon, days of willingness, days of wanting his people. And interestingly enough, the terminology, Yemei Ratzon, comes from a very interesting place. I mentioned to you that there was a 40-day segment of time in which Moses prayed for forgiveness and not, had not accomplished the forgiveness. That, those days are called Jamaicas, the days of anger. Then there was another 40-day period, which ends on the day of Yom Kippur. Those are Yemei Ratzon. Those are days in which God wants us, forgives us, loves us. Yemei Ratzon. There was, in the first 40-day segment, the first 40 days after God uttered the Ten Commandments on the mountain of Sinai, in which in those 40 days, God was teaching Moses all of the intricacies of the Torah and giving to humanity and to the Jewish people the greatest spiritual gift that, had, what, what, that was ever bequeathed to this world, the Torah itself. So we have three 40-day periods. The first 40-day period, which begins with the Ten Commandments and ends after a 40-day period of learning. It happens to be that when that 40-day period of learning, Moses comes down and finds the Jew worshipping the golden calf. Then you have another 40-day period, which is referred to as you may calf, days of wrath. And then a third segment of 40 days, which is referred to as Yemei Ratzon, days of willingness and love. And when our sages want to explain the, the measure 
of how much willingness and how much love was in that last 40-day segment period of time, our sages say it in the following way. Just like the first 40 days when the Jews stood around the mountain of Sinai and was compared spiritually to angels, those days were definitely days of awesome and tremendous love between God and his people because it was at that point that the Jew reached his highest level and God's highest hopes and expectations were realized. So just like in those first 40 days, the relationship between God and his people was at its maximum state of love and closeness, so too the last 40 days are similar days of Ratzon. So where does the terminology Ratzon come from? The same way that we, can, we understand that the first 40 days were supreme love, because that's when the Jew was at his most excellent level spiritually, the last 40 days are understood and taught to us in the Chumash as being identical in the relationship. You may reckon. Ma'yamim arishayim in just like the first 40 days were berotten, mem yamim achronim, the last 40 days are the same rotten, the same willingness and love as the first 40 days. And that's where the terminology of rotten, that word, comes from. But more than where the terminology of the word comes from is the significance of the parallel. Because in making this parallel, what we are being taught is the following. What we are being taught is that the Jew reaches a very, very high level and classically has problems in sustaining that level and falls from that level as historically it happened in the sin of the golden calf. But that doesn't prevent the Jew through a process of tshuva, through a process of correction, and through a process of repentance, to be able to gain back virtually all of the ground that was lost. And therefore, when it says in our sages, just like the first 40 days were with supreme love, so were the last days, that is not only a statement of the relationship, it is also a statement which tells us that we have the ability to make up all of that which was lost in the, in the highest and the most supreme relationship that the Jew had with God. <clears throat> the truth of the matter is that this was no easy feat. To be able to say that God should love us 60% or 70%, I'm a good friend, a very, very good friend, uh, that doesn't, uh, that's also a tremendous accomplishment. But to say that after having gone away in such a critical way in the sin of the golden calf, that the Jew is able to, to recreate a relationship through a process of correction that was identical to the first relationship, that is something which was unique to the spiritual qualities of that generation. Another generation that wasn't as spiritually as great as them might not have been able to accomplish the, the ability to go back to that highest level. But that generation, they made their contributions when they were good, and they also made their contributions when they made their mistakes. The contribution that they made when they made their mistakes was that they beat out a path of correction. And what is necessary, and what processes do you have to go through intellectually, psychologically, emotionally, what is demanded? And in the same way that we are ears of tremendous amount of all kinds of spiritual exercise and potential, we also become the, the, the ones that inherit 
inherit this quality of being able to make up that which has been lost. And the notion that once it's lost, you can't really get back to what you were before is dashed out by this generation. This generation, as the first generation of a congregation returning to God, makes an indelible imprint on the spiritual personality that the Jew has the ability to return to the supremest relationship that was ever intended for the Jew to have between himself and God. And that's the statement of Ratzon. Yemei Ratzon means uh, the identical relationship to the one that was intended for you when you were born. The same way that when you were born, certainly you started off clean and God was hoping and, and waiting for the most meaningful relationship that you could possess within your potential. Yemei Ratzon says that these are days of parallel, of being identical to that which you were intended to be when you were created. And therefore, these days are considered, these days are considered days that have a tremendous amount of God wanting to find us. You may rest them. There are days in which God wants us. But relationships are two-way streets. And God wanting us does, is not the whole story. God wanting us means that we have to start picking up some messages and responding to the want that God has for his people in order to be able to close the gap, to close the space that has been created that we are not identical to what we were intended to be in terms of our potential. With that as a preface to the historical basis of what Elul is and that it's a gift in time that a person has the ability to reach back to what he really was intended to be or what he was at a point in time, I'd like to examine on two levels a particular connection that exists between the portion of the week that we read this week and this particular period of time. Invariably, the portion of Kisavo, which is this week's portion, is always read during the month of Elo which means that the messages of the portion of Kisovo are relevant to this particular time of the year. And over the years, I have wondered quite a bit what is the significance. Now, there are two primary things that are discussed in the portion of Kisovo. The first is the mitzvah, the command of bringing Bikurim. Simply stated without getting into very great detail, simply stated is, it is the following. When the Jew comes into the land of Israel, conquers the land, settles the land, he is required, after he cultivates the land, to go out into his fields and to see the first ripened fruits that are growing in his field from the seven particular types that the land of Israel is praised for, make a mark around them even before they are harvested, then wait for the harvest, go back into the field, cut these first ripened fruit and bring them to Jerusalem in a tremendous parade and procession which I will describe momentarily and give it as a present to the Kohen. Give it as a present to the priest. This is referred to as the mitzvah of Bikurim. Bikurim coming from, from the word Bikur which means ripen. The first ripened fruits of these seven types that the land of Israel is praised for. This is what is brought in the form of Bikurim. 
It is not how much you bring, you can bring a little bit. The idea is that you bring from the very first that ripens in the field. And it is brought to the cowing. And there are a number of interesting things about this. When you do bring it, firstly, let me just give you, uh, maybe paint a little bit of a picture of what the mitzvah of Bikurim was all about. Well, basically what happened was, with, with Bikurim is that after they harvested the first, the, the ripened fruits, what they did was, they used to put these ripened fruits, if they were olives or pomegranates, or whatever it was, the seven types that the land of Israel was praised with, they used to put this into vessels of gold, into vessels of silver, and they used to carry it from wherever they were in the land of Israel to Jerusalem on top of oxen that were ornamented with all kinds of gorgeous necklaces and everything else, and they went in parade procession to Jerusalem. And when they reached when they were still outside of the, of the city of Jerusalem, they began singing a particular psalm that speaks of the fact of the excitement and the exhilaration of coming close to the city of Jerusalem. Let us walk, come to the house of God with tremendous exhilaration, with tremendous excitement. When they crossed the border into Jerusalem, they all sang in unison the song of our feet stand now in this cherished soil of Jerusalem. And as they ascended the Harabayas, and as they ascended the, the, the mount that went up to the, to the Holy Temple, they again sang a song. <coughs> that spoke of the upcoming meeting of thanks with God that would be in the temple. And finally, when they reached the courtyard of the Holy Temple, they sung out the psalm which says, Kol Tahaluka, that all souls sing out in the praise of the Lord. So this was a very specific form of doing the mitzvah. It was with parade, with songs, specific songs at specific points, and there was a big tararam, there was a big tumult, there was a lot of noise that was made about this. And then, when they, they, they reached Jerusalem and they reached the Holy Temple, it was even before they reached the Holy Temple that they took the fruits off the animals and they carried them on their shoulders into the, into the courtyard of the Holy Temple. And then there was a process of handing this over to the Kohen, to the priest that was officiating that particular day in the Holy Temple. And then, the person that brought the Bikurim had to confess. That's what it's called. It's called Vidridvarim. It's called a form of confession. What was the confession? The confession was, these are the fruits, I'm more or less paraphrasing what the Torah says, these are the fruits that have grown in the land that you promised to our forefathers and you have given to us by virtue of that promise. One statement. The next statement of confession is, we are now going to go back and we're going to have a history lesson. And we're going to start all the way back from Abraham's times and how Terach was an idol worshiper and how Abraham was chased all over the place and nobody believed in him and so many people stood in the way to try to destroy the Jewish people in the bud and how the Jew went down to Egypt and how he suffered in Egypt and how he prayed and how Moses took us out and how we had to go through the desert and then we finally arrived here 
And now these are the fruits of the land. So we're getting a history course. And the, every Jew had to go through this breakdown of history. And these two statements, which I've just shared with you, are referred to in the language of our sages as Zidim a confession that was made by every person that brought the Bikurim. And the question that comes up is, what is the significance of this historical accounting? And number two, why is it called a confession? Why is it called Zidim? The reason why I'm sharing this with you is that the only connection between the beginning of the portion of Bikurim with Rosh Hashanah seems to be the similarity of the word Vidui. In Bikurim there is a concept of Vidui, and we know in the High Holidays and in the process of penitence there is also some concept of Vidui. That's our only hint of the connection between this mitzvah and this particular time of the year. So I was always baffled and I couldn't understand what the connection was. So I usually satisfied myself and say, well, the beginning is really not connected. It's the end that's really connected to this time of the year. Why? Because the end talks about if you'll be good, this is going to be, and this will be. And if you'll be bad, ooh, ooh, this is going to be, and this is going to be. So this seems to be the spirit of the time. It's good to get a review of this before Rosh Hashanah and Kippur so we know exactly where the score is at, and we should do something about it. So it doesn't take too much brains to figure out the connection of the end of the portion with Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. But the beginning is a little bit elusive. It's not very clear what the beginning has to do with it. Secondly, most portions in the Torah are inter- interconnected. What's the connection between the Bikurim at the beginning of the portion and this whole Teichacha, this whole revealing of good and bad at the end of the portion? What's that relationship about? So we have a number of questions. <clears throat> there are many, many facets to the mitzvah of Bikurim. There are many facets to the mitzvah of Bikurim that are, are worthwhile to go through. I will mention a couple of them, but I'd like to settle in on one central one. Obviously, the most central concept in, the, in Bikurim is an attitude of what Jewish nationalism or what religious Zionism is all about. When a Jew had to bring the very, very first ripened fruits that the land was praised for and give it to the religious figure called the Kohen, there was a very definitive statement made up on the Jew's part of the fact that he believed in God as creator. He believed in the fact that his connection to the land was because God had given it to him. And this was all concretized by the fact that he followed through and said, this is the fruits of the land that you promised our forefathers and you've given to us. So basically it is a statement of God as creator and therefore responsible for what we have in this world. It's a statement of that nature. Even more significantly than that, it is a statement of our belief in God's involvement in history and that the historical process eventually shows up and that which was promised at the beginning eventually bears fruit, it comes true. And there is a God that's involved in the world. If we make those kinds of statements and those kinds of realizations by virtue of the fruit that the land gives us, our connection to the land immediately becomes a bridge to God. And that becomes a very definite statement of how we view what it is that we're looking for in the land of Israel. We see the land of Israel as building bridges in our recognition and our awareness of God as creator, our awareness of God as the one that follows through on promises, 
our awareness of God as being that God that's involved in history. And that is all afforded by seeing the entire relationship of history with the Jew and his land, and it all culminates in saying this is what the whole story was about from the very beginning. And I'm giving it in a way of proclaiming that awareness. Now, obviously, and some of you have heard this from me many times before, the statement as to what the significance of the land is is not only a statement of significance of the land, but it's also a statement of significance of what life is all about. Because the land cannot be more significant than the most significant thing that a person has in their life. For instance, let's say, just as an example, that a person, the significance of a person's life is to become financially independent. Right? And financially independent is defined by $100,000 plus. That's, that's my goal in life. Now you come along and you start talking to me about a mitzvah of Bikurim, and God created the world, and God keeps his promise, and he's involved, and this is the significance of what the land sparks in my mind and in my heart, and I concretize this by bringing fruits and saying, this is it. This is, this is the end of the historical process. Now, that is basically, for a person who is goal-oriented, just in becoming financially independent, a totally ridiculous process. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. It would make more sense to take all of the fruits of the land and make a big bonfire or a big flea market when everything is over and invite everybody to gorge themselves with as much food as they can. And this is what I made happen to myself. I became financially independent. What's the relationship of making philosophical statements if in one's own life those philosophical statements don't bear any weight? So when we talk about making statements vis-a-vis -vis the land of Israel, those statements vis-a-vis -vis the land of Israel are also statements as to why it's a shidduch for me. Why is the land compatible with me? Why is it significant to me? Because it sparks in me this realization which is significant for me to have in my life and something that I can use in my life. Oh, then it's a different story. Then I'm looking to come close to God, and the land is a medium, it's a bridge to come closer to God. So the mitzvah of Bikurim is not just a definition of a land, but it becomes a redefined way of evaluating my connection to the physical world, my connection to a land, my connection to nationalism on a Jewish level. It's a completely different kind of a mindset. And seemingly, that would be sufficient enough to be something that would be related to Rosh Hashanah. Seemingly, we could end the class right here, we found the answer. Very simply, the mitzvah of Bikurim is a lesson in how to relate to the physical world in its supremest fashion, and that's significant, because when we come before God on the day of Rosh Hashanah, we ask for so many physical requests, do we really understand what we're asking for? Why are all of those things significant? Simply because I want to feel good? or because I'm going to say to God that those physical things are necessary components of a more meaningful life, that I need these things as, to help me and to aid me in my higher spiritual goals. The mitzvah of Bikurim then forms on the person to think about how he relates to the physical world. Does he see the physical world as an end unto itself, a goal unto itself? Does he see it as a means towards an end? Does he use it as a partner in his developing a relationship with God, or is it a single God unto itself? Seemingly, the mitzvah of Bikurim gives us a moment to think 
about what our relationship to the physical world is, which makes the setting of when we approach God on the day of Rosh Hashanah that much more meaningful. We have to approach God on all levels, physical and spiritual. But how do we make the balance? How do we see the relationship? The mitzvah Bikurim gives me a way of constructing the relationship. This would be seemingly a sufficient answer to the connection of Bikurim to Rosh Hashanah. But there are most definitely much deeper connections between Bikurim and Rosh Hashanah, and I would like to share three of those connections with you. <clears throat> we mentioned before in question that the entire historical story that a person was supposed to say how he got to the place that he did is called Vidri. It's called confession. And the question that we asked is what's the significance of going through history? Number two, why is it called confession? And I think that the answer to this question lies in a, in a very fine point. And that is the following. One of the cornerstones of, of Jewish thinking and Jewish practice is hakaras hakos, appreciating the good that is done with one, appreciating it, recognizing it for what it is, trying to, to pay back, trying to say thank you, trying to reciprocate. That's a quality of a mature good person. Hakaras hakos. This is true between people, and this is also true between man and God. And it is a very principal thought in Judaism, Hakaras Hatov, seeing the good for what it is, being man enough to admit to the fact that I am a recipient of good, being thankful for it, being appreciative for it, trying to do what I can to, re to respond in a way of appreciation for the good that's been done. That's a very, very important concept in Judaism for many reasons, between people and between man and God as well. And there's no doubt that the mitzvah of the We've gotten to this point. We started off with nothing, no land, no people, nothing to be proud of, nothing to speak of, and now we're, we're bringing bountiful amounts of our own land. And this is a way of saying we recognize it comes from you, thank you. Fine. And it's Hakarat Hatov. But that still doesn't explain the concept of Vidri, the concept of confession. Now, in the concept of hakarasatev, in the concept of appreciation, in order to express appreciation properly, a person must look at the whole picture. Let me give you an example. Let's say a person starts off with three pennies in his pocket, and by somebody's help, after a month, he has $3,000. Now, he can forget about the fact that he has three pennies in his pocket, and he can say, today I have $3,000 in my pocket. I am, I am thankful today that I have $3,000 in my pocket. It doesn't have to be in relationship to the fact that yesterday I had three pennies, or a month ago I had three pennies. $3,000 in one day is a lot of money. And I'm thankful for $3,000 today. And that's one level of appreciation. But the full level of appreciation will take in the fact that the person says to themselves, it's not only the good that I have today, but let's compare it to what I had yesterday. So it's measured twofold. It's measured in terms of the good that's inherent in what I have today, and I also appreciate it because it's so much different and so much better than my condition yesterday. 
Yesterday I had three pennies. Today I have three thousand dollars. That's wonderful. That maximizes the extent of appreciating what I have tenfold, a hundredfold. Uh, it's much. It's a much bigger thing. And that's why in the concepts of appreciation, we always go with the formula of Makhil Begnes and Messiah Beshrach. Be honest. Say where you started from and how far you've gotten. Because that's also a part of the process of appreciating what's been done and what you, what, how things have changed for yourself. But again, it still doesn't answer what's the concept of Vidui. So here is the fine point. Let's say a person for five years of his life, ten years of his life, or for a segment of any year of a person's life, was living through a rough situation. And then all of a sudden things changed. Business went good, the relationship that wasn't working out all of a sudden works out, everything seems to fall into place, and I'm on in seventh heaven. And I say, well, I'm a good Jew, I want to say thank you to God. So what do I do? I say, God, I'm a swell guy. I am willing to forget about the first four months that you made me miserable. <laughs> the last eight months, the last eight months have been wonderful. Thank you for them. Thank you. Now, you laugh at this. You laugh at this, but this is a normal, if not conscious, but subconscious psychology of a person. The bad I don't understand. I have a bone to pick with you. I don't have the answers for it. But I'm willing to forget, forgive and forget, or forget and forgive, whichever way you want to put it. And I'm saying thank you for the good that's happened now. What Matko Begnus, the Messiah Bishach, says is two things. On the first level, it's saying that I'm not going to forget the hard times. And I don't understand the hard times. But I'm not going to forget it because I know that I've gone from point A to point B, and that's a dramatic change, and I'm thankful not only for the change, but the drama of the change. The, the, uh, that's one part of it. But there's a deeper part to it. The deeper part to it is that sometimes when you get to the end of the process, you look back at the total process, and you can be thankful even for the past, that were difficult when you were living through them and you wanted to reject them and you wanted to argue and fight and kick back at. In other words, in a person's life, a person has to work. It's not an easy thing to do. There are a lot of things that happen in a period of a person's life, in every person's life. No person is excluded from this. There are periods of time in a person's life that are difficult and hard and ununderstandable and seemingly unjustified. Now, when things get better, what do I do? Do I just try to forget about the bad time and concentrate on the good time and say thank you? Or do I try to put the whole thing into a perspective? And now that I arrive at the end of the line, I try to look back and see how some of the crises of my earlier parts of life really pushed me in the direction that I'm so happy that I am in right now at this point in time. The truth of the matter is that life cannot be taken in chunks. Cut this part out, make major surgery on this part, accept this part. Life's not like that. A human being is a living thing in a constant developmental process. And it's a challenge. It's not always easy to find. But every part of life is a sequence. 
every part of life has a meaningful contribution to, to make upon the person. It's not always easy to understand. Case in point, the Jew starts off at very meager beginnings, is contested on the very first ideological levels in terms of the belief in God. At every level, there are people that are trying to poison the little kids that are going to become the Jewish people. The Jew is thrown into a Mitzrayim, thrown into a spiritual exile. There are no answers to that history. But the Jew realizes that all of that built the spiritual fiber of the people, gave them um, a grain of resistance to what was going on outside that they would eventually evolve into a people that would be able to have a connection to a land and not act like the Egypt that they were in, but act with a very appropriate bridge between the physical and spiritual. So what the Jew was doing here was the Jew was saying, now that I've arrived at the land, it's not that I'm saying to God, I'll forgive you for Egypt. I'm now saying thank you for Egypt. Because the experience of Egypt, the experience of the struggles, the experiences of the challenges, all were well, all well used experiences because now when I come into the land, I don't become drunk with physical. I don't become drunk with the material. I always see the connection to you because I saw the connection to you in dire times. So I am going to take that and never lose sight of that even in the times of blessing. And I can even see that some of the hard periods of my life were significant to get me to this point. The say, our sages tell us the Jew that lived through Egypt was worthy to live in the land of Israel. The people that never lived through the exiles of Egypt were not worthy to benefit from the land of Israel. There's a sequence there. There's a relationship there. And that's the Vidui. That's the Vidui. The Vidui is that a Jew naturally rejects rebels against the crises, rebels against the troubles that come into life, doesn't want to accept them as messages or is confused about what the messages are. The Vidri at this point, the confession at this point is, I am now prepared to accept the whole thing I, because I have a way of understanding it. I see that there's a relationship. I see that one thing leads to another thing. To put it into capsule form, the thank you is not just for the good that came at the end of the tunnel. The thank you is for the entire process that makes me reach the point of the good that comes at the end. Now, when we think into that concept, that is a very critical concept. That concept of Vidri Dvarim is a very, very critical concept that we have to carry with ourselves into Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur for two reasons. Firstly, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is in a certain sense, and we're going to try to explain it a little bit this evening in the remaining time, is in a certain sense a crisis. It's a testing time. It's a challenging time. I have to be able to look back, show what I did for myself. There's nobody to fool. It's to show to myself, and then to be able to, to plea a case of continuous, or I'll do better at it, or I have reason to do better at it, give me another chance. It is a time of crisis if we believe that it's a time of judgment. It's a serious period of time. There is a subconscious resistance to having to go through this. I'll grow at my own pace. I'll do what I think is right. Don't stuff anything down my throat. Don't scare me. There is. I'm saying it in very gross ways. But there, are, there is a subconscious resistance 
to this whole process. To which the parish of Bikurim comes and reminds us that all of life has difficulty. All of life has crises. But ultimately it has to be seen in the total picture. It can't be fragmented. This part I'm going to dismiss. This is the unpleasant part. A person has to realize that it's all part of a growing process. And if we're subject to a difficult period of time, a hard period of time, it shouldn't be viewed and measured only in terms of the stress of this moment, but how much growth will come from this if I will maturely approach the stress of this moment. Jews don't run away from stress. Obviously, you don't have to drive yourself crazy with the stress, but a Jew doesn't run away from stress. Stress is, to a certain extent, important for growth. And the mitzvah of Bikurim is saying that. The mitzvah of Bikurim is a scenario for the Jew. It's a scenario for the Jew. There are difficult times, there are hard times, there are unexplainable times. But it all has a pattern. It has a path. And that's something that's very important when we begin this pattern of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and everything that comes with it, the hard times, the long davening, the scary sermons, or the sleepy sermons, whatever it is. But it's a hard time. How do we look at it? What do I need all of this? Forget about the hard stuff. Let's get to the stuff that's nice. Let's dance. Let's have a simchas prayer. Let's have a little of an asterisk. Who needs all of this? And that's what the Bikurim is saying. The Bikurim is saying is that life is a bittersweet mixture. It has both in it. And ultimately, a person cannot appreciate the true quality of life unless he can maturely accept that there's a process, and there are hard moments, and there are easier moments, and there are crisis moments, and there are challenge moments. There's nothing wrong with that. That's all part of a growth process. The other part of it, why it's so critical in analysis, is because sometimes we're not ready for the day of judgment because we have a back account of resentment with God. Huh, the day of judgment is coming. God is going to judge me. Well, he gave me a lousy deal this past year, and I still don't know the reasons for that, and now I'm going to worry about another year? (laughs) No, honestly, there is a certain amount, there is a certain amount that a person can subconsciously say, I've been wronged, I resent the way I've been treated, I'm not in the frame of mind of making amends. I don't have to make the amends. There is such a frame of mind. And when people live through ununderstandable crisis and all kinds of ununderstandable suffering, there is a tendency of don't talk to me about amends, the amends I don't have to make. I'm barely staying alive and surviving and you're talking to me about shuva. And therefore, again, the message of Bikurim. The message of Bikurim is that history of, of the Jewish people is very ununderstandable. There are periods of time that are seemingly checkmate on the justice of God. They don't make any sense. If a person would have looked at the segment of Jewish history called the exile in Egypt, and the millions of people that died in Egypt, and the millions that didn't leave, and what they were subjugated to, subjected to, in Egypt, it's an ununderstandable piece of history. But the Jew stands at the end of that piece of history and says, these are the fruits from that entire process. What that the portion of the Quran is then saying is that in the same way that we, in other words, we have replicas, we have models of ununderstandable segments of history that eventually lead to the fruits of the land. 
And therefore, in your own life, even if you don't have a particular way of explaining the sequence, know that it is ultimately destined to priha'areth. It is destined to bring fruits forth. This is the, one of the approaches of the relationship of Bikurim to Rosh Hashanah. It also explains the relationship of Bikurim to the end of the portion that deals with the good and the bad and the punishment and the reward. How we understand reward and punishment is not to quickly say the rewards out loud and go through the punishments quietly. It is a custom in, in synagogue. But I heard uh, from one of my teachers of blessed memory that if it would be up to him, he would, be, he, would, he would annul the custom of going through the curses of the portion. And he would demand that it be said out loud. Because one of the mistakes of our generation is that we want to see everything in the soft, rosy, peace, love terms and not understand that there is another side that's necessary for human development and for spiritual development. And you have to take both parts of it and not to take both parts of it is not a realistic way of growing. And that's, again, the relationship between the Bikurim at the beginning and the Teichacha, the strong talk at the end of the portion. <coughs> There is, though, two other, two other relationships between Bikurim and Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. I'll touch on one, and if we'll have time, I'll get to the next, to the third. If we look in the writings of the Arachayim HaKadosh, who is classically known to give the mystical or the symbolic, the symbolic meanings behind mitzvot, when it comes to the portion of Bikurim, he says something which is very odd. He says that the entire portion of Bikurim is a symbolism of afterlife. And I will share with you one or two verses. When man comes to that land, that land being the world of the afterlife, the world to come. I shall that God promised to give to you that you inherited by virtue of your actions. How do you get there? You bring the tree ha'aretz. You bring the labors and the good labors and your first labors and your strong efforts and that's how you get to that afterlife. Now, I don't have the chumash in front of me, but he goes through every single verse and he proves that there is a symbolic connection of a discussion to afterlife. We're going to get there. That's a period where the life is in a state of happiness. We get there because we were promised that this would be the product of our actions and we grow in this way. But we have to, in order to get there, dedicate the prime energies of our lives to be able to get there. That's basically the way the Arachayim formulates it. And he goes through all of the verses and he, and he continues with this theme. What does afterlife have to do with Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? Seemingly, the whole theme of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is let's postpone afterlife. I want another year here. So what's the relationship between Bikurim and Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? But the relationship is, is a, a, very, a very deep one. And let me try to explain it in the following way. What is afterlife? What is it? Basically, what afterlife is, in the, in the most concise definition that I can give to it, is that with the physical termination of life, 
that component of the human being which is his neshama, his soul continues to live yes it is a Jewish concept in fact it's one of the 13 principles of belief of Judaism the soul continues to live on but the condition of the soul continuing to live on in afterlife is in exact proportion to the extent that it was developed in, in its lifetime when it was with its physical partner in other words if a human being in lifetime did that which was compatible with neshama, compatible with soul, was considerate to the needs of the, of, of the soul, so the soul grows in life, has a way of appreciating spirituality because it's been exposed to it, and then when the person dies and the physical is over, the soul has grown to a spiritual maturity during its lifetime that it can now enjoy a closeness with God that came by virtue of what was done in lifetime. So afterlife is not a big bang theory, it's not an explosion, it's not reborn again, it's nothing more than a concept of continuation. And the, continu- the concept of continuation is, is a very inspiring one, but a very awesome one. Because what it means then is, and I'm not trying to scare anybody, but it means that whenever we make a decision in life, we usually make the decisions maximum for 70, 80 years. We don't think beyond that point. What afterlife is saying relevant to how we apply it to life here is not to space ourselves out and get there, but the way we apply it to life here is saying that when I make a decision, is, am I going to make the decision in the short term of the physical life, or am I going to measure the significance of this action in terms of what will I have to carry away with me after I leave this world. So when I make a decision about anything, my question is, how will it benefit the physical which ends in 70, 80 years? And how will it benefit or disbenefit the neshama that I'm going to have to carry with me for an eternity afterwards? That becomes the, the crucial aspect of afterlife as it applies to life. So we have thousand-year decisions to make, a million-year decisions to make. It's, it's a it broadens the extent of how we have to decide in what we do. That's the concept of afterlife. But let's get a little bit deeper into this. And those of you that consider this morbid, I do too, but it's important to deal with it. We can have the impression that after the physical terminates, and then it's just the soul, then every person becomes a saint. Why? Because all of my problems come from my human limitations, from my physical sources. The physical is gone, so now I'm only in the Shama, so I'll turn into a tzaddik, I'll turn into a malach, into an angel. Not so. Not so. What Sifrei Kabbalah, what our mystical writings teach us is that what a person strove for in life is what they carry with them even in afterlife. Which means that let's say a person maintains that the ultimate goal of life is to make that million. I'm just using a million as an example. Right? When he leaves this world, his neshama looks for a million. His neshama is still looking for the physical. Now, no, the Gemara even says 
that the Nishanas, the people that were physically indulgent in this world, if they're buried in less than an elaborate coffin, they look at their surroundings and they're embarrassed of their neighbors. <laughs> now, I'm not going to make a joke out of it, but what, what's the concept? The concept is that when we're involved in this world, let's say we make a physical thing our life goal. So it's not only the physical part of me that becomes attached to it, my neshama becomes attached to it also, because I need the energies of my soul to get there. I need the hope and the courage and the inertia and the consistency and the drive and the, and the, and the planning it and, and watering it the mouth. I need all of that to get there. That's part of my neshama. So my neshama becomes attached to it. My neshama becomes attached to it. And if my neshama becomes attached to it when the physical ends, but my neshama still was so attached to the physical, then after life, it also is in search of it. It got used to it. It's part of the routine. It's part of the rat race. Find those physical things. But, needless to say, that there is nothing physical also to the neshama after life is over. So it becomes a very, very frustrating experience for the neshama. Plus the fact that the neshama knows of the decay of the body, knows how it can't get anything physical that it's looking for, is anguished and tortured by the decomposition of the total physical of itself. This is supreme, supreme pain. But what's the, what's the, what's the, what's the concept that's behind it? The concept that's behind it is that the neshama through this anguished process of running to and fro looking for the physical and not getting it and in the meantime seeing the decomposition of the physical of itself this becomes a lesson to the neshama that it lived life with a mistaken identity I thought my identity and my being and the goal of life was the physical I am slowly coming to realize that it can't be that because it ended it's going away from me. It's eluding me. I can't have any... In this world of reality, it's not, it's not even accessible. There's no way of getting to it. And what it really becomes is a lesson of how the Neshama comes to realize that all of life was being lived in a mistaken identity. And that is a form of tikkun. That's a form of correction for the Neshama. And after a given period of time, the Neshama can then go back to the realized level that it was supposed to have before. Now, when the day of Rosh Hashanah comes, and now I'll tie it together, when the day of Rosh Hashanah comes, the Talmud tells us there are three books that are open. The two primary books that are open are Sifrei Chayim and Sifrei Mason, the books of the living and the books of the, of the dead. We usually think that that means those that will live for another year and those that will die in the next year. Now, the Gemara continues. And the Gemara says, Sadiqim Gemurim, those that are completely righteous on the day of Rosh Hashanah, they're written into the Book of Life. Rishayim Gemurim, those that are wicked and are beyond hope, whatever that's supposed to mean, they're written into the Book of the Dead. Bainanim, the people that vacillate between the two, they have another ten days chance. So Yom Kippur. That's what the Gemara says. Now, there's one big question with this. I know, and most probably you do too, plenty of people that don't deserve to walk the face of the earth, 
that go through Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and live a year in and year out and year in and year out. What happened? How come they weren't written into the Sifra Nason? How come they weren't written into that Book of the Dead? What happened? And the answer to the question is that when we talk about the Book of the Life, the living and the Book of the Dead, we're not talking about physical, but we're talking about the continuity of the spiritual. What is the, con- what is the, what is the condition of life of the spiritual content of the human being? Is his neshama alive or is his neshama dead? Is his neshama functioning or is his neshama not functioning? There are loads of people that walk around that are technically, in medical terms, alive, but they're in a book of Mason. They're already in the book of the dead because their, their neshamas are completely unused, untouched, untapped. They're completely dormant. They're, they're hidden away in a basement in a dungeon someplace. Sifra Mason. And therefore, when the day of Rosh Hashanah comes, we are accustomed to thinking that the day is a day in which we have decided if we're physically going to live or not. Are we going to have livelihood or not? Are we going to have health or not? And all of those things are true. But more than that, you know what the day of Rosh Hashanah decides first and foremost? Hashem looks at the neshama of the person and says, what am I going to give this neshama? Am I going to give this neshama more to live for? Give it more spiritual content? Will it be able to blossom and grow in the next year? Does it deserve to blossom and grow in the next year? Or is it going to become desensitized? Is it going to become an unusable object? Is it going to go into dormancy? Is it going to go to sleep? Is it going to go into a coma? Sifrei Chai and the Sifrei Mason. That's the decision of the Book of Life and the Book of the Dead. That's what's really going on. And all of the decisions in terms of the physical are all decided as secondary aspects to fulfill the decisions of the, of the neshama. God will decide this neshama de- it deserves to live, and in order to live, it deserves to have a comfortable life so that the neshama should grow. And then, now the neshama, God says, it also must grow in this year, but this neshama will grow with a little bit less. It has to grow through a situation of crisis this year. That's what's necessary for it to grow. All of the decisions in terms of the physical are made to accommodate the earlier decision in terms of the nature of the neshama. A neshama can, for instance, be decided that it's dead. That's it. It's finished. But God says, I've got to pay the person back for the good things, so he has a wonderful year in terms of physical things. There are many, many possibilities. But all of the physical decisions that are made are made in view of the major decision of what the quality of the neshama is going to be in the next year. With this, it becomes very, un- very understandable why we talk about Bikurim. Because the concept of Bikurim is Kisavayala Aris. Stop thinking about the fact that eventually you're going to have to live with what you make of your neshama forever and ever. Kisavayala Aris, the time is going to come where you're going to have to live with the products of what you've made of your neshama. And therefore, the message is that the only way that you can really guarantee being happy with it is bring priha'aret. Bring your real energies. Bring your first energies into developing that afterlife. And let me explain for a moment what I mean by that. Many of us view life with all of its challenges and everything is a wonderful place 
and, and a wonderful opportunity, and also I will fulfill my obligations, and I'll punch in and out my time card of obligation to God and my obligation to my Judaism. But when it's seen in that way, which is a gross way of describing it, where do we give our prime energy? Where do we give our most gifted energies, our gifted potentials? In the pursuit of everything in the world or in the pursuit of our Yiddishkeit, in the pursuit of our Judaism? If we look at everything in the world as the supreme goal, you know, all of the physical and everything is the supreme